Cliffcentral.com. Welcome. This is the Renegade Report. And, uh, well, it's our first show. It's actually an intro before our first show. So, uh, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Ramon. And, uh, yeah, it should be a good series. We've signed up for six of them. Uh, hopefully, we'll get more. Otherwise, they'll probably throw us out of the building. Uh, that is, if the building hasn't been torched by then. You know, people get angry when you say things these days. You need to not offend them. And their sensibilities. So, uh, why are we doing the show, Ramon? Well, basically, we want to attack these uh, nefarious ideas that are floating around uh, our media and social media, especially lately. Um, most of these ideas have very little foundation to them. And I'm trying to, well, we are trying to bring a bit of neoliberal propaganda in the form of statistics and data to challenge these ideas. Statistics and data. Swear words, swear words. In 2016, those things are, are not liked at all. These are things uh, people don't like you to bring to bear upon their theories and ideas. And uh, from my side, I really think we, we came together to, to do the show because we both got quite frustrated with uh, the fact that uh, things just aren't interrogated very well. And there seems to be a sort of dominating uh, kind of dialogue that happens. Uh, and as I, I know you don't like the word balance, but uh, but uh, I, I quite like the idea that you're getting views from both sides uh, and opinions from both sides and, and actually uh, looking at the ideas, not the people. So we will try on the show as best as we can not to go off the people involved uh, because we're not trying to take on people. We're trying to take on the ideas that they come up with and, 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 and just interrogate that. No, sure. But I mean, we're not on the other side of the narrative, so to speak. We are just going to discuss ideas in and of themselves. Um, I'm not. I'm anarchist. Like I don't have any political yeah, affiliations you, you don't, whatsoever. You want the government to to be gone? Absolutely. And then we will just uh, I don't know subsistence farm and build our own roads. We'll just have thousands of little oranjas all over the place. Fantastic. Oh goodness, he said oranja, and it's not even. We're literally not even three minutes into the show, and we're already discussing Aranya. So uh, let's avoid that topic until at least a little bit later on in the series. Um, but but these are the type of topics we want to discuss. Uh, some of the stuff we're going to be going through. So first of all, we're going to go through Roads Must Fall, the campaign and the movement. What the hell do they want? What does decolonizing a university mean? I, I thought it would be just nuking the whole place because universities are colonial. Yeah, in, in essence. Well, they, the first one was they're, in Italy. They're, they're a European concept. Absolutely. Those darn Europeans. <laughs> um, so we're going to look at Roads Must Fall and look at what the hell they're on about. What exactly do they want? And most importantly, um, are the ideas worth anything? Yeah, all right. So that's, that's today's show. That's going to sort of come straight after this intro. Uh, and then uh, as we go through the series, we've, we've got a whole bunch of other shows where we're going to talk about. So we've got a show on... Uh, Group politics and, and group identity and identity politics. Uh, so we Talk about swear words. Yeah, well, I mean, look, uh, you know, I, I imagine our show will be very oppressive to those people. Um, and, uh, 
and you know certainly that show will come with a trigger warning I would imagine well they've burnt art can they burn people we will find out <laughs> ah, fair enough and and I can say that because I have been burnt physically in yeah, the past, so. yeah so there you go it's okay he can make the joke he's literally had burns that's my experiences um, and uh just uh, while we're going through all this, all the topics, Renegade Report. How did we come to that? Well, frankly speaking, was taken. Yeah, unfortunately. Oh, damn it, taken. Uh, so was Focus, <laughs> and so was Card Blanche. So we like, yeah. Well, so and I think we are combining a number of things here because it's a whole bunch of the stuff white people are scared of, uh, you know, and and then it's 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 actually tackling some of the stuff that really matters. So. So uh, props to the shows that have tried to do that before, but we're actually going to allow voices to speak uh, and, and be heard. We, we won't play down that the economy doesn't exist uh, because of people's hurt feelings. Um, so uh, that, that's kind of the group identity show dealt with then. Yes. Uh, what, what else we got coming up? What else do we have? Oh, we've got one on economics. Oh, that'll, that'll be interesting. So we have two students coming in to talk to us about that. They've got uh, quite a libertarian sort of uh, slant on things. Absolutely. And that will be a cracker, I think. Most people will will either be infuriated or will be impressed. Hopefully yeah, both. I, I think, I think uh, look, if you're a true liberal, uh, and there's not many of those left, uh, or, a, or a libertarian, you'll probably like that show quite a bit. Uh, if you're left of liberal, you're going to get very annoyed. Uh, and, uh, well, I'm hoping we can piss the conservatives off too. Because, you know, they're, they're, they're a little bit tight. Do they still exist? Well, in South Africa, surely. I mean, if we had a vote tomorrow on anything conservative, uh, let's vote about gay marriage tomorrow in South Africa. Uh, uh, no, I, can I can guarantee you that it wouldn't be legal. No, down all that filth. Who <laughs> would have thought that two people in a room can bother me? Exactly. Uh, you know, why, why shouldn't I be allowed to tell people what they can do in their own bedroom? I mean... Really ridiculous, ridiculous. So uh, I think we've actually got a very conservative society, unfortunately. I would tend to agree with you. Highly religious, very tribalistic. And I mean tribalistic in both ways. White people are also very tribalistic. Don't oh, call me racist yet. It's not <laughs> even five minutes into the show. Well, we've done a run here and we've, uh, no, no, we almost seven minutes it took you to, to go down that road. Al almost seven minutes. So you can see, um, Roman's going to say the, the crazy stuff, uh, and, and then occasionally, um, I will try to, uh, to, to, to tell you how it fits in. Uh, all right, uh, we've also got a show on apartheid. That should be a killer. That will be a killer. We've got, excuse a, the pun. A, a, yeah. We've got a lovely Indian man come to talk to us about that. And the easiest way to get rid of apartheid mentality and groupthink. Uh, so that will be interesting to find out from him. Um, the next show is, on freedom of speech and satire in a liberal democracy which in which we don't live in at the moment. But well, well, on paper we, we do. We've got a wonderful constitution. Absolutely. It's a liberal constitution. It's a wonderful piece of paper. Nobody really likes it. We, we know this. We know that the, the governing party has, has openly said they don't really believe in it. You know, you don't arrest a war criminal. I mean, you know, that's just genocide is kind of okay. No, but uh, if you the constitution to... doesn't re really apply to all scenarios. No, but like the freedom chart is another piece of paper, but that's somehow more important. Written yes. by a bunch of communists in the fifties. It's, it's a good point, actually. That piece of paper is far more important more than important this one. Than the, yeah, because of course we got sold down the river for the constitution, don't you know? So uh, the, these are these are some of the discussions we really want to have, and 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 we want to interrogate these ideas because people say these outrageous things, and. Maybe they're correct, but then they must bring facts to bear. So 
you're going to listen to the show uh, out there, we hope. Uh, if you don't, uh, you know, we'll just cry into our soup. But uh, if you at any point, we're, we're not live, so you, you can't call in to us, but you can write to us. Um, you're welcome to send us an email. We uh, uh, have a Gmail account, uh, very industrious of us. Uh, so, like most entrepreneurs, yes, absolutely. Well, you have to have a Gmail account, you know, and you get Google Plus, and and, and then you list it on a website somewhere. Um, so, Renegade Report Mailbox at Gmail dot com. It's quite long. Renegade Report Mailbox at Gmail dot com. Anything you don't like, uh, we take death threats. We, we take death threats, pornography, hate mail. <laughs> I insist on yeah. hate mail. Hate mail is very important. In fact, we haven't done our job if we don't get some hate mail. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll take that kindly. You can find uh, both of us on Twitter. Uh, you might not find uh, Ramon because uh, he's been blocked um, by everyone, probably including you. So um, it's R-O-M-A-N. Yes, uh, I will call him Roman on occasion, uh, but it is Ramon. Uh, 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 underscore is it underscore is it no, just no underscore? one word so it's Roman Cabanac C-A-B-A-N-A-C that's him on Twitter and uh, I'm Jonathan underscore wit and uh, yeah you can find us on Twitter where we uh, sometimes say some vocal things we usually say very offensive stuff that for some reason doesn't get us landed up in court isn't that odd uh, it's, it's deeply disappointing too for some reason. Isn't it, I mean, isn't it irritating that only the people in the public eye get nailed for saying stuff? I mean, Gareth Cliff retweeted me and he was found in court, but I wasn't asked oh, yes, to go. I actually forgot, forgot about this part. So, uh, so, so Gareth ended up in court for actually commenting on uh, Ramon's tweet. That was, that was actually what happened. Indeed. In fact, Ramon commented on a poll tweet um, and Gareth commented on that and, and that was, that was uh, the... Uh, People just don't get freedom of speech. So if the show is annoying you, it's probably because you just don't get freedom of speech. I think that's quite racist of you, John. I, I Indeed, racist, oppressive, um, and uh, really I'm showing my white privilege. That's what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to. Well, that's all you have left, I'm afraid, <laughs> after these podcasts come out. Uh, yeah, well, they, they they will try, they will try, but uh, but we we're gonna we're gonna talk, we're gonna have discussions, and I'm really hoping that we're uh, gonna make people think, even if you don't like us. Uh, I uh, myself have discovered a whole bunch of podcasts uh, on the web um, where I don't necessarily always agree with a the guy. There's a guy called Ben Shapiro. He's a extreme uh, right wing. Uh, yeah, but you just like him because he's Jewish. Yeah, no, of course, of course. You know, that's that's you, you must always together. you must always stick with your own. You know, he's uh, very right-wing, and I don't agree with all his views, but occasionally, and not even occasionally, regularly, he says things that make sense. And uh, just because I don't agree with everything he says doesn't mean I can't agree with some of the stuff he says. You don't want to kill him in the public square? <laughs> no, I don't. It's funny. He actually went to a public speaking event uh, yesterday, and they wanted to stop him from talking. I, I heard that uh, podcast this morning, actually. Oh, and? He was busy talking. He went anyway, even though he was so-called banned. He went anyway, gave the speech, and during the course of the speech, the, the liberal protesters, they switched on the fire alarm halfway through his speech. And he <laughs> said, fuck you guys, I'm carrying on. And he did. Fantastic. And no one was hurt. That's, that's an amazing, amazing thing. Well, health and safety must have shat themselves. But um, 
I think we will also refer to a number of people we listen to as we as we kind of go through this series. Uh, everyone from uh, South Africans, so we're quite big fans of uh, Gareth's show. Uh, and that's not just a punt because uh, Cliff Central have been kind enough to give us a home. Uh, but uh, we, we both think he's got quite uh, sane views on things. Um, uh, shows like the Czar podcast, which is uh, Stephen Reardon's uh, brainchild. Czar is excellent. Um so, in terms of local podcasts, there's actually not much out there other than Cliff Central. I think, and I think those are the those honest. are the two big ones. Uh, and then uh, there's some great stuff. You know, uh, the Ruben Report is is really excellent. So some excellent guests. I'm a quite a big fan of Sam Harris and his Waking Up podcast. That's a very good one. But you just like both of them because no, is Sam Jewish? I don't know. No, Sam's in, not originally, and now he's such an atheist. Uh, you know, he, he definitely doesn't believe in anything. Um, although he is quite the meditating spiritualist, absolutely, he's an atheist spiritualist. I'm still wrapping my head. No, I also don't quite get it. But uh, there are many things. I think he's actually quite intelligent. There are many things I don't get that he that he does. I'm, I think it's because I'm not quite there yet. But I mean, other than those two, um, Joe Rogan is is also quite nice. Oh yeah, Joe Rogan's not bad. You just got to pick your podcast because he's quite the he's quite the sort of get into the the martial arts kind of stuff. Yeah, he is. His latest one is on evolutionary behavior, which is quite fascinating. Interesting. Uh, and other than that, uh, if you really want your mind blown, you listen to a podcast called Rationally Speaking, which is based on European philosophy. Trigger, uh, I should have said a trigger warning you, before you should that. Have, you should have Sorry. given a trigger warning. So, so uh, those are some of our sort of inputs and some of the, the, the sort of uh, podcasts we listen to, we admire. Uh, and we're hoping to get close with some of the South African topics, some of the, the stuff that's major in our dialogue every day, the things people are talking about. And we, well, we think people are talking about because we need to constantly remind ourselves that Twitter is not real life. Uh, yes, believe it or not, it isn't real life. Um, and another thing that we are trying to do is to show, well, hopefully you listeners, that views, different views from yours are okay in a democracy. I think that's the point. It's called competition of ideas, the marketplace. You can have two ideas at once and the world does not end. No, you you don't have to try to kill someone for saying something. Absolutely. And, uh, and we'd all be much better off. I think if uh, we, we, the sooner we all realize that and we all got to grips, even with the stuff that makes us uncomfortable. Absolutely. Cool. So, there we go. Nothing more to say for the moment. Not for the moment. So we're going to end this part of the show and we're going to go straight into uh, our uh, guest for this week. And that will be Michael Carter. So welcome to the Renegade Report. Uh, this is uh, our first show, and uh, as we mentioned in our intro, we're going to be discussing multiple topics. So this week, our guest is Dr. Michael Cardo. He's a DA member of Parliament. He's also the Shadow Minister of Economic Development, and he holds a BA summa cum laude in English, French, and History from the University of Natal, as well as an MPhil and PhD in History from the University of Cambridge. So, uh, without any further introductions, this is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the show. Essentially, this week, we chatted to you offline. We wanted to discuss Roads Must Fall. Uh, you wrote uh, an article last year, which uh, I thought was quite brave at the time because, 
you were one of the only people kind of sort of saying this probably isn't a good idea. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of sympathy and support for the movement uh, back then. And yeah. I suppose hindsight is twenty twenty, and we can look at it now and sort of say, well, it didn't really necessarily turn out too well. Um, but but let's sort of go to the beginning and what your initial impressions were. Sure. Well, I suppose I wrote that initial piece um, on the sinister underbelly of the Roads Must Fall movement, which was published on uh, the Politics web, uh, website, because I was kind of taken aback, I guess, by the overwhelming decision of the University of Cape Town Senate to agree to the removal of Rhodes statue. I mean, I think the... Uh, ultimate decision went by about 181 votes to one, um, which is remarkable. I mean, especially for a group of academics, you know. That there was, um, there's, there's no debate, essentially. Absolutely. And, you know, academics aren't renowned for coming to uh, a single point of view. Presumably, if you've got that many people in the room, um, the vote would have been split up. Um, so something rang an alarm bell for me. Um, it was unusual to have a decision which was sort of clamorously endorsed by a group of academics. And I really wanted to know why. So I started doing some research around the Roads Must Fall movement, which was very much in its infancy at that stage. I wrote this piece in March or April last year when yeah. the movement had started going. And I sort of started digging around their Facebook page, um, looked at some of the uh, broadcast material that was available of some of the meetings that were held, looked at some of the opinion pieces that they'd started to write, and I really began to see um, traces of what looked like a pretty undemocratic movement, um, saying some pretty authoritarian things. Um, and when I dug a little deeper this became all the more clearer. But as I say, this was early days yet. The whole Roads Must Fall movement had just got off the ground. Um, you know, Max Whaley had only just thrown the feces at Rhodes' statue. I think those sort of uh, nascent, incipient uh, indicators of uh, sort of intolerance, authoritarianism, have become uh, much more pronounced today. Um, and that sort of culminated in the burning of paintings, which, for me at any rate, really put the, the crypto-fascism of the Roads Must Fall movement uh, front and centre. So, Michael, uh, this is Ramon. Hello again. Hi, Ramon. Um, going back to the decision by the Senate, I mean, there could be other reasons for the decision other than listening to the Roads Must Fall movement. Do you think there, there could be a good argument that they pursued and that they accepted or do you believe it was a bit hamstrung or they were hamstrung rather i do believe they were forced into it um, and especially if you look at the council decision that was taken later um, and which ended up ratifying the senate's decision i mean that decision was arrived at in an atmosphere of absolutely intolerable pressure you had a great number of students from the Road Must Fall movement outside the building in which the meeting had taken place. In fact, I think the venue was kept secret um, because there was an expectation that um, there would be protests. But anyway, the, the students managed to find out where this uh, council meeting was taking place. 
and there was protest action that took place outside. And eventually, um, you know, the doors of the building were broken open. Uh, members of the Roads Must Fall movement flooded in and started chanting slogans like one settler, one bullet. Now, that's hardly the kind of atmosphere conducive to sane, rational, sober uh, decision-making. So I do feel that, of course, it's entirely possible that a number of members of uh, the Senate were persuaded by arguments in favor of uh, the removal of the statute. But, of course, you must also bear in mind that that wasn't the only option available to them. Um, You know, roads could have been relocated to a position of lesser prominence on the campus. Um, Another statue could have been erected of Nelson Mandela, for example, so that you would have them almost uh, juxtaposed. uh, juxtaposed. Um, There are a whole bunch of creative solutions. And, in fact, if I recall correctly, L.B. Sachs wrote a very good piece which appeared in the City Press at the time exploring some of the other options that were available to um, UCT. So it's, it's just very surprising that a group of academics um, who you would presume would be open to exploring uh, the various options available to them seemed almost to capitulate. And that has begun a precedent, or it began a precedent, which has become more pronounced with the passage of time because what you've seen, in effect, is the Roads Must Fall movement becoming increasingly violent, uh, increasingly fascist, and that has in some way been facilitated by that very early uh, and almost complete capitulation uh, on the part of the UCT Senate. But now, Michael, like we, I think all three of us agree that Rhodes is not a liberal hero of any sorts. Absolutely not. Um, why would we want his statue to remain? If that's a claim we are making, I don't know if that's the one I'm making, but what benefit is there to leave it where it was? Look, personally, I was never actually in favor of Rhodes remaining in the prominent position that he was in. I mean, he's at the bottom of the jammy steps. Um, you know, he, he is almost a focal point of the campus. And you're quite right. He isn't a hero of the liberal tradition in South Africa. In that piece that I wrote, I, I pointed out that um, – he was very much regarded, as he was, uh, an imperialist jingo, and he was derided by the likes of Olive Schreiner in her uh, book, Trooper Peter Halkett of Mashonaland, uh, in which she excoriated him in his, his native policy. So he doesn't belong to the liberal tradition in South Africa, even though I suspect there is uh, an assumption made by many of those involved with the Roads Must Fall movement that he does somehow embody something quite essential about white liberalism in South Africa, which I think is entirely wrong. But anyway, to get back to your question, um, I think that you know, it may have been a better idea, as I said earlier, if he had been juxtaposed with the statue of Mandela or if indeed he had been moved elsewhere on the campus. I mean, I, mean, I think from, from my perspective, uh, you know, the other point to make about it, which has been made again and again with regards to the history, is that uh, go back to that time and try find what you would uh, sort of deem to be a liberal uh, and anyone with sort of progressive type of views. And, and you're not going to find many people uh, at, at that at that sort of uh, sort of time in history. 
Is that a fair is that a fair argument? The whole historical argument and that you can't kind of erase history even though there were very bad people, you know, at, at many parts of history. Well, I wouldn't go along with you in so far as uh, you suggest that there was, you know, a complete dearth of liberals in South Africa at the time. I mean, the fact is that liberalism is, in fact, probably the oldest political tradition in South Africa. Um, it stretches back hundreds of years, and it um, was a particularly vibrant and vital political tradition in the Cape province, as it was then known. Um, and, in fact, Olive Shrine, who I mentioned, yeah. um, you know, was a great embodiment of the liberal tradition. Um, but I take your point that, I mean, he, he was a product of his time, um, and he was also, it must be said, a particularly pernicious product of his time. I mean, he, he wasn't a great guy. Um, you know, yes, uh, he was a generous benefactor, um, to both uh, the University of Cape Town and indeed to Oxford University, where the Rhodes Must Fall movement has uh, met with much less success. Um, but to answer your question, um, Rhodes was in fact um, not somebody who I think um, would be held up by people who regard themselves in as liberals in South Africa, as any sort of um, flag bearer for the liberal tradition and certainly no kind of hero. I mean, I would very much like um, it to be realized that he wasn't a, a liberal and, in fact, he, he doesn't belong in the liberal tradition. So, now, Michael, now going back to the movement itself, uh, earlier in our conversation you just called them fascists. Mm. That is a loaded term. Um, what do you mean by them being fascists? Um, well, I mean a couple of things. Um, they're certainly authoritarian. Uh, they have quite a totalitarian worldview. Um, they have no regard for individual autonomy. Um, you know, if you look at the discourse that's employed by the Rhodes Must Fall movement, it's all about bodies um, who are sort of shaped by structures and systems and historical forces beyond their control. So there's a profound kind of rejection of the, the liberal conception of the individual. There's a profound rejection of the liberal conception of individual agency and autonomy. And that goes hand in hand with a very authoritarian enforcement of conformity. Um, another key characteristic of what I would regard as an essentially fascist movement, is its complete intolerance of dissent, um, its disregard for rational dialogue and debate. Um, thirdly, its belief that uh, its demands are non-negotiable. So, you know, there, there's no um, brokering involved. There's no rational discussion and an attempt to meet a uh, solution halfway. Um, but also, interestingly, um, insofar as discourse is concerned, there's almost a kind of uh, aestheticization of pain and suffering um, on the one hand, black pain and black suffering on the one hand, and this notion of white privilege, which we can talk about more in, in due course, so on the other. So there's a sort of totalitarian binary way of looking at the world. 
Um, and anything that doesn't fit into that frame of reference is kind of violently rejected, um, which accounts, I suppose, for the movement's increasing recourse to violence and intimidation, um, which culminated in the, the art burnings of a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so for me, uh, you know, reading your article and then also reading some responses to your article, because you, you wrote um, your piece and, and uh, Gareth von Onselen wrote a piece around the same time uh, dealing with the, the, the concept of roads must fall and white privilege and, and, and uh, that whole idea. Um, and then, uh, you know, Jacques Rousseau responded. I don't know if you've read that, but, but part of what he said was uh, that essentially – um, both yourself and Gareth gave UCT too little credit and exaggerated the likely consequences of the road statue removal. And uh, for me, it, it's kind of, well, at that time, either of you could have been right. You know, uh, mm. Maybe it was just a statue removal and, and nothing more. And I think that most people who supported the movement went, well, you know, he was a bad guy. Uh, he certainly shouldn't hold a prominent place, as, as you agree, and I, I do too. Um, and so most people went with, kind of went with it. Um, but, but uh, you, you know, those of us who looked at this sort of movement, which, as you mentioned, reacted to any kind of opposition with, with violence, really, um, and refused to debate on any level, uh, sort of saw the fascism in it and, and, and kind of predicted the point where we are now, uh, where, mm. we, where we have a very sort of dangerous movement, uh, which is – which I suppose – you know, in many respects, and, and I think a lot of people feel burning art is just sort of the pinnacle of the most barbaric thing you can possibly do. Um, so, you know, what's your sort of feelings now on, on, on how we got here and, and the people that might not have seen us this coming and, and where, mm. we, where we're going next with this? Well, I mean, I don't really know if I agree with the argument, and it's a long time since I read Jacques Rousseau's piece and um, the piece that Gareth von Onslen wrote at the time of uh, the statue being removed. But, I mean, I don't really buy the argument that had the statue not been removed, then the consequences for UCT and the administration would have been too ghastly to contemplate and that it would have you know, opened up a Pandora's box. I mean, the fact is that the statue has been removed and Pandora's box has been opened. You know, where does it all end? Um, the fact that art was burned, um, the fact that on another campus at the University of the Northwest, the science building was burned. I mean, yeah. it, it, it does suggest that um, these kind of nascent traits of fascism, which were an early display, have now read themselves um, being inflamed and caught fire. So, you know, I'm not of the view that um, the policy of appeasement um, would have worked. In fact, it's, it's been clearly shown not to have worked. Well, um, uh, and in fact, it had many, many, many ugly consequences. Well, Michael, I'm on the Roads Must Fall Facebook page, <clears throat> and this was written in April. 9th, 2015. And it clearly says, the second last paragraph, we must not forget that management are our colonial administrators and their removal of the statue is merely an attempt to placate us and to be perceived as sympathetic. Our freedom cannot be given to us. It, we must take it. So, I mean, it was quite clear even a year ago that 
Det var inte om en statue. Det var aldrig. Ja, och om du också tittar på konceptet av universitetet som artikulerat by the Rhodes Must Fall movement. Um, you know, its definition of the university is that the politics of the movement clearly dictate an antagonism to the liberal university and its conception, um, as they say, with particular reference to the role of the post-colonial elite institution in maintaining the status quo, which we unambiguously desire to deconstruct. Um, so this project of decolonization, as articulated insofar as it's been articulated by the Rhodes Must Fall movement, and some of it I think is a fairly incoherent articulation, it's pretty clear that this is a project of deconstruction, of tearing down, of breaking up. There's no forward-looking visionary um, statement of what it is that a decolonized university would look like. Yeah, well, absolutely. I, if I can jump in there, I, I mean, I sit at a, on a committee at uh, Wits University, uh, and uh, for the past sort of almost a year, we've constantly been told by student reps, you know, that the university needs to be decolonized. And I, I constantly ask what that means, and I never actually get an answer. Uh, because, you know, if, if, if you could express what that, what that stands for, maybe I would agree with part of it. Um, but I, I'm not sure if you have a better grasp on, on what, what that actually entails? Well, look, I think a lot of these terms that are employed um, by what I call the identitarians, you know, the, the student movement that's very heavily invested it's a in wonderful term. a quite vicious form of identity politics. And it's not only racial identity politics, it's, it's, it's gender identity politics, it's every imaginable kind of identity politics that you can think of. Um, But a lot of these terms, like whiteness, like white privilege, like decolonization, like even black pain, for that matter, aren't very clearly articulated and defined. Um, they tend to mean anything you want them to mean. But uh, ha oh, having sorry. said that, having said that, I mean, to be fair to the Rhodes Must Fall movement, I mean, I, I do think that they have uh, enunciated certain uh, core concepts uh, in their agenda. So, for example, they've been quite insistent about um, implementing curriculum reform, which is Africa. Um, you know, they, they want African discourses to be the point of departure in communities through content of what's taught in classes, um, but also through language, Uh, methodologies of education and learning. Uh, so there is a kind of anti-Eurocentric, uh, Afrocentric to curriculum reform. Um, there's also been a strong demand around. Uh, we're, uh, sorry, we're breaking up a little bit on your line. Okay, uh, can you hear me now? Uh, no, this line is poor. So what I'm going to do is we're going to take a short break. Uh, we're going to pick you back up on the Afrocentric part uh, when we come sure. back. Download the Cliff Central app, available now on the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. Right, and we've managed to get uh, Mark back on the line, so uh, we can continue with the conversation. Sorry, as you were saying. Yeah, so the first point I made was around um, the Eurocentric curriculum, what's perceived to be a Eurocentric curriculum that uh, privileges the Western canon and the humanities. The second aspect 
would revolve around the representation of uh, black lecturers across faculties at UCT. Um, you know, there's this feeling that there are limitations in place on the access uh, of black ac- academics to senior positions. So there's a call for that to be uh, revised. Um, and then the various other aspects which I seem uh, to recall them highlighting at the time as part of the decolonization agenda was to uh, change the admissions policy quite fundamentally, so to adopt an admissions policy that explicitly uh, uses race as a proxy for disadvantage um, and thus prioritizing uh, black applicants. All right, so thanks for explaining that because some of it makes sense and some of it I can't actually disagree with. Uh, For example... Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly the academic pool should, over time, become more representative of the group of people we have in this country. Um, but I, I think it was a point you actually did make going along the lines of it takes time to get a professor. You, it's something that just doesn't happen overnight if you want quality, essentially. Exactly. It's a point that's been made by the UCT administration on numerous occasions, and that is that it takes more than 20 years from obtaining a PhD, which is your kind of trade union ticket into academia, to becoming a professor. So, as I wrote in the piece, the pool of black South African academics available for appointment to professorship in 2016, for example, um, would depend on the pool of black PhD graduates 20 years beforehand in 1996. Um, And there aren't any quick-fix solutions to increasing that pool. Um, You need a much... uh, more sustainable long-term solution, which is really to improve the quality of the public education system that pumps the pool 20 years down the line. Um, Another thing to be borne in mind, I suppose, too, is that a career in academia is not always that attractive for a highly qualified um, black graduate. Um, You know, you're going to earn much more money in the private sector or even in the public sector for that matter, than were you to stay on as a university lecturer. Now, Michael, um, there was um, the initiator, Mr. Maxwell, I believe was his name, of yes. Rosemont's Fall. He, he, he's, he's not a young man anymore. Um, he's been a student for a number of years. I don't know. I don't yes, know. I think, it, I, yeah. How long I think he's in his mid-30s. Yes. So he's been a student for almost a decade, I believe, or a bit more than that. What would someone like that, why would he initiate this? Um, is it seeking political office? <laughs> I don't really understand. Yeah. Look, I mean, I don't really know enough about uh, Mr. McSweeley's personal situation to sort of pronounce authoritatively on the reasons for his being involved. I mean, one of the points that I did make in a a sort of a a subsequent follow-up piece that I wrote on the problem with racial identity politics um, was that the whole political culture of uh, student politics and student protest has kind of shifted. So I think there's something symbolically quite significant in um, Maxwelli choosing to fling feces at the statue while captured on camera in doing so. 
And I do think that there is a tendency within this identitarian student movement to be quite narcissistic. So that politics doesn't become a, a, a rational attempt to solve differences between different role players, but it actually becomes a very self-regarding, uh, highly inward-looking, narcissistic phenomenon that, yes, you do get your 15 minutes of fame and, you know, you do get your uh, mug put all over um, the news channels. So, uh, you know, I would suspect that there was some kind of uh, uh, self-promotion agenda behind this decision to do that. Um, but that's really just uh, the suspicion. I mean, I, I can't say what his motives were. No, certainly so. I mean, we don't expect you to speak on his behalf, of course. Um, but now, going back to something we've discussed, they, they want to diminish whiteness, so to speak, in tertiary education. Um, do you have any idea what they mean by that? I've got some vague notion. Look, um, you know, I actually came to this stuff by way of... Um, my honours year, uh, which was quite a long time ago, um, in 1998, when critical race theory was beginning to be popularised in South African humanities faculties and social sciences departments, um, and it was all the rage. I mean, this is a sort of a function of South African academia, or certainly the humanities at any rate. We kind of go through Saddish phases. So in the 1970s and 1980s, everybody was a Marxist in the humanities faculty. In the 1990s, everybody was a, a post-colonial theorist. Uh, and in the late 1990s, um, critical race theory had begun washing up on our shore when everybody was sort of examining whiteness and whiteness studies was beginning to become a discipline. So I had done some reading around um, whiteness and white privilege, the key texts in this regard is, or the key texts in this regard are really authored by uh, a man called uh, David Rodiger. And the kind of key features of whiteness are that it's, it's socially and it's politically constructed, um, that it's not just your skin color. So, you know, um, it goes beyond that. Whiteness is based on a whole bunch of beliefs and values and behaviors and habits and attitudes. Um, but the key thing uh, in and among all of those things, beliefs, values, behaviors, habits and attitudes, is that power is distributed unequally um, and it's based on one's skin color. Um, so you, you hold a certain position of power within the system of whiteness. If you are white, you are privileged. If you are black, you are disadvantaged. You have diminished agency um, and you operate essentially in a white world. The other key point to be made about whiteness um, or what scholars of whiteness studies would argue is that whiteness is a, it's, it's a kind of unconsciousness. It's, it's, a, it's a lack of awareness. So whiteness is frequently... In fact, usually always, uh, invisible to white people. They can't see their whiteness. They can't see
see their white privilege. Um, and this lack of awareness, this inability to see one's whiteness and one's white privilege um, leads to a fundamental lack of understanding about what causes oppression um, and what causes structural advantage and structural disadvantage, which is why I think um, you see this kind of virtue signaling competition among uh, white scholars of whiteness studies who get very excited when they kind of discover their own whiteness um, and who announce it <laughs> uh, to great fanfare. It sort of becomes a competition uh, among them to see who can be more aware of their whiteness and to extol it very proudly, which is why, you know, often in the pieces that I do write, I find those people particularly insufferable. <laughs> Okay, so you've said a lot there, and uh, I think it's an important discussion to have because it's 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 really the kind of the dialogue that that comes from Rhodes Must Fall, which is, um, you know, it, it, they kind of dismiss you based on groupthink essentially. So if you're if you're a white male, then you know you 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 can't comment on it because you don't know their struggle. Um, but but isn't that in itself? racist that all white people are privileged and all black people are suffering isn't it in itself to put people into boxes based on their skin well it's certainly very um simplistic and binary look i mean as i said in that initial rose in the school piece that i wrote this notion of white privilege is, is, is quite seductive um at a superficial level because the fact is that Apartheid was a grand system of white privilege. There's no getting away from that. I mean, it, it was a system of white preference and it was a system of white preferment. And yes, if you were white, you benefited from it. And yes, even though apartheid ceased to be uh, in 1994, the fact is that there are certain uh, generational um, consequences and that uh, the benefits and privileges that were enjoyed by, you know, people of our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation, for certain, do get handed down. Um, and the fact was that apartheid did um, deprivilege, for want of a better word, black South Africans in a fairly fundamental way. Um, uh, well, in a fairly number of fundamental ways, um, you know, key among which was the fact that there was a sort of interruption of um, wealth accumulation um, over generations. Um, so, you know, I don't seek to dismiss out of hand um, this notion of white privilege, although I do resent the way in which it's become such a packaged concept um, and then it's used almost as a, a, a kind of a, what Robert Conquest, the historian of Soviet Empire, would call a, a brain blindfold or a mind blocker and a thought extinguisher. You know, it tends to shut down conversation. Yeah. Uh, people say, you know, you, you, okay, yeah, carry on. Sorry, Michael. I mean, I think we, most rational people can agree that apartheid was an unequal system. I don't think there's any reason to believe otherwise based on evidence and that those consequences and advantages still still happen to 
to come through to this day. Um, but there are, but those things can be explained through political or, uh, economics. Uh, they, they can be explained through a whole lot of other things. But somehow, white privilege is seen as almost original sin for Marxists, if you know what I mean. Uh, a lot of advantages and societal advantages that whites have or don't have um, can be explained economically. I mean, we, we do understand why people are better educated, for example. Uh, we do understand uh, why people are in management positions because... Well, because they have skills available to them. Well, the majority of black people don't. Now, those can be explained economically. Why don't these people do so then? They they use it almost like a sledgehammer as opposed to Mm. an argument. Well, you know, I think because a number of the most vocal proponents of the discourse of whiteness and white privilege are frankly economically illiterate. So yes. certainly in academia, um, this thing had its genesis in um, departments of literary and cultural theory. A number of philosophers had been at the forefront of trying to analyze whiteness and white privilege. Um, and the fact is that I don't think they're particularly interested in the sort of economic and structural aspects. And the effect of that is that whiteness and white privilege have turned into a form of identity hand-wringing. And they've been essentialized in such a way as to make them precisely that, a kind of essential part of what it means to be white or to have a white identity. So I don't think there's any um, rigorous uh, attempt to understand uh, the structural nature of white supremacy um, of the history of apartheid, it's all kind of descended into um, vast generalizations around identity and some fairly essentialist notions around privilege and around whiteness. Yeah. Now, I would tend to agree with you. I, I do find the conversation lacks a lot of a lot of well data i mean the data is there but that can be explained through other through other means i just find is there do you believe that there is a sort of industry building around this notion because a lot of books are being written about it a lot of people actually have jobs writing about it i, I think it's economically quite um fruit, fruit, fruitful for for these opinionistas? Absolutely. Whiteness and white privilege has become a veritable cottage industry and a lucrative one at that. So not only is it popular inside the academy, not not only is every English lecturer and philosopher and professor of gender studies writing about whiteness, but it's also become quite popular uh, and um, lucrative outside of the academy. So you've got a number of people um, within the intelligentsia whose pieces you see in the op-ed pages of our daily newspapers who write about nothing but whiteness and white privilege. There's a whole group of them, and I do think there's some sort of bandwagon effect at play here. 
these people are positioning themselves in the vanguard of the intellectual vanguard of racial populism, um, which is why it's very difficult for them to come out, for example, and uh, categorically condemn what happened at UCT with art burning a couple of weeks ago. You know, they'll sort of wring their hands and say, yes, but, you know, this is kind of um, violence in response to institutional violence. Um, and what can you expect these these students to do? Um, surely that can't be so, justified on any level. I mean, the, 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 you surely cannot stand by with burning of art, burning of buildings, as we saw a few days ago, and, and sort of say, well, you know, these are people who've been, you know, oppressed for however long, and they feel X amount of pain over this, or, or you categorize the pain according to race, and, and then you kind of justify the violence. Uh, have, have, have we lost the point at which we believe that, that almost violence uh, is kind of the last resort, and, and certainly it doesn't seem like we've reached that point, or have we? Well, I mean, to answer your question, yes, you would think that people wouldn't respond in that way because the burning of art is so profoundly irrational. It's so profoundly anti-intellectual um, that you would expect people with intellectual and or academic pretensions to denounce it um, categorically and emphatically. But the fact is that you know, there's almost a kind of radical shipness associated with being part of the student movement and with lending your voice and your support as a public intellectual to the student cause. So you don't want to be seen to be undermining that cause. And the effect, of course, is a form of self-censorship. You decide to hold your tongue. And that becomes very, very dangerous when it, it starts to become ingrained in uh, the intellectual space um, because then you don't start um, identifying what is essentially a fascist movement. You don't start identifying the trends. Uh, you end up not being able to see where it's going to end up. Um, and that is a profoundly um, bad phenomenon. Michael, what do you think of the, um, the phenomenon of the liberals well, in inverted commas, liberals took over the universities in the 70s and the 80s, and now they are being eaten by their children, so to speak. So I, I do find that the response from the universities, touching on the points we made much earlier, the response has been so inadequate, so lacking in authority, almost. It's almost like they they want to sympathize with the protesters uh, and try to sort of tell them that they're wrong at the same time. It's, it's a strange dichotomy there. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't want to be a vice-chancellor at this time in South African history. I mean, I do think it must be one of the most difficult jobs in the country at the moment. And dangerous and, with firebombs coming into your and, office. And absolutely, dangerous. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to be glib and make... Uh, rash statements about what should and shouldn't have been done. Um, other than to say that if you capitulate from the word go, if you cave in, as I do think the UCC tenets 
definitive result, overwhelming vote. Um, you set yourself up for grave problems down the line because things only become worse. Um, so that's one way of answering your question. The other is, you know, I'm not sure that many of the vice chancellors would regard themselves as liberals who are now being eaten by their children. I mean, gosh, you know, if you look at the record of some of our vice chancellors, I, I don't think they would consciously self-identify as part of the liberal tradition in South Africa. Um, you know, somebody like Max Price, for example, I think was probably a very left-leaning student himself. Uh, certainly, Adam Habib, um, uh, the vice chancellor of, of Vitz, was, you know, positively a, a Trotskyite in his day. So I'm not yeah, quite and sure. And remains that, to um, some extent. Yes, although I think he's written some very sensible stuff of late um, on what's been happening at Vitz. Um, and around the violence. And he's been quite vocal. We had quite a good piece in uh, one of the Sunday newspapers uh, this weekend past. Um, and I think he's, he's very alive, just following on social media, to the kind of point of no return that's been reached at an institution like the University of the Northwest. Um, you know, when you start burning down buildings, well, as he rightly said on Twitter, um, the people who will bear the consequences of that worst, who will suffer the most, are in fact the poorest of the poor students who now have to get out of res, who have to leave the campus, they don't necessarily have alternative arrangements. Um, it's, it's, it's just a disaster. But Michael, do you think that vice-chancellors have forgotten that they're actually managers? They're not actually elected by the students in any way, shape or form. They are there to manage the university. Do you think they've, they've actually forgotten about that? Like, do they think they are somehow beholden to students and, you know, to their whims? I can't say that for sure. Um, yes, you are right. I mean, there are administrators and they are charged with managing uh, what are essentially very, very complex institutions with the multiplicity of stakeholders, um, all of whom have differing agendas. So they have a complex job. Um, what I think can be said, and what I'd like to reiterate, is that um, the policy of appeasement that was followed by some vice-chancellors right at the get-go, with right in the school, for example, um, has, has backfired spectacularly. So, you know, if the Northwest University happenings produce anything of uh, beneficial consequence, it will hopefully be that a line in the sand will now be drawn so that when students do commit acts of what are patently criminality, um, the law must take its course. Um, you know, uh, students who engage in arson, students who burn down things um, should be arrested and should be tried. Um, and that university administrators shouldn't cave in student pressure for charges to be dropped in the lab. Yeah, well, I mean, isn't this uh, just kind of the chickens coming home to roost? You know, you, you have a situation last year where people want a statue gone and they spray paint and they, you know, it's minor sort of petty crime in, in essence. They spray paint and they smear feces on things and, and they, they, you know, they do a whole bunch of things that are distasteful or at, at, at minimum or maximum, I suppose, a, a petty type of crime, and it gets left alone because it's kind of 
sort of seen as part of the protest and, and you don't really want to pick on anyone for a small thing. But it, if you don't say no to these things, you, you kind of end up at the point where we are now. Absolutely. It's a vicious cycle. What is what is your view on 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 the claim that these students want free tertiary education? Because um, I'm I'm of the view that it is a pity that people are excluded due to financial constraints, and th- there must be a way to to ameliorate that. But do you think free tertiary education could be something the state could look at? I mean, first of all, that they're fighting the state by proxy three universities and somehow they want the same state to give them free education um, benevolently, which I found a bit ironic, but nevertheless, can, can free tertiary education be something that we can afford at this stage? Well, I know at one stage that the South African Institute of Race Relations was doing research into the um, viability of free education um, and their initial findings uh, were that it was indeed possible. Now, you know, the South African Institute of Race Relations is very much a classical liberal think tank. Um, so, you know, they're, they're not a think tank that you would uh, automatically say would come out and support the students. So they think it's possible. But the point that I would make is that the crisis that we find ourselves in today, you know, it has a fairly long history. In fact, it has a history spanning the two decades of our democracy. Because the fact is that higher education has been severely underfunded for 20 years. So these vice chancellors, these university administrators, they are in a very, very difficult position, not of their own making. Because going hand in hand with the severe underfunding of universities over a 20-year period is the fact that, you know, numbers have been increasing um, 100% of uh, newcomers to universities are from poor backgrounds, um, and the government hasn't come to the party uh, with regards to university funding. So uh, it hasn't invested consistently in infrastructure, um, in research equipment, um, in laboratories and classrooms and maintenance uh, and all those things. Um, and the funding, the government subsidy, just hasn't kept pace. So in a way, this crisis, even though it goes beyond um, just funding, I mean, you know, this isn't just about fees must fall, it's about, uh, well, it's about identity politics over and above that. The fact is that government is to some degree, in fact, to a very large degree, responsible for the funding crisis that besets universities. Um, I think it's something like a a 17 billion uh, uh, gap in funding at the moment. And some of the ways that we would need to go about addressing that would be to um, ramp up the offering of NISFAS, uh, you know, to improve the administration of NISFAS, to make it more streamlined, to make it more efficient. Um, and yes, we do also have to engage partners outside of government. So, for example, um, you know, an idea has been mooted that you engage with the banking industry to find ways to expand more loans to students um, in the middle, um, that you try 
uh, tie student repayments of loans to the tax systems, as happens in Australia, to help secure repayments, um, and then empowering universities, boosting universities' uh, capacity to raise private funds. Um, but the bottom line is that this is, uh, in some degree, a crisis of the government's own making. Yeah, and so it, you know, it would be better to actually um, channel one's frustration to the government itself. I, I think a yeah. lot of the frustrations that are channeled towards university vice chancellors, um, that's actually a little bit unfair. Well, that's because they are. That's what I, I kind of, you know, it's. It, do you think it's it's what you you know you refer to kind of as the economic illiteracy? earlier or do you think it's just more political in that you know you rather blame whiteness or you rather blame a vice chancellor and management and the colonialists and you know all these kind of victimhood um, descriptions and 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 ways of thinking rather than the obvious fact which is the government provides basically tertiary education. Uh, you know, you pay a, a portion when you go to university, but obviously uh, it, it's it's all subsidised to some extent. Um, so if if you know you might want to pick on the colonialists as your enemy, but in essence your major enemy here is the government that hasn't adequately planned. Absolutely, and I think there's some kind of uh, unwillingness to stare that truth squarely in the face. You know, in as much as the scholars of whiteness studies like to say that whites are are blind to their own privilege and blind to the benefits I, of white. I can assure you when I pay tax every month, I'm not blind to anything. <laughs> I, I think there's an unwillingness on the part of students to apportion blame in responsibility to the democratic government, to the ANC government. It, it's, it's far easier to pin the blame elsewhere. And this is very much a trait of racial identity politics. You know, racial identity politics is so heavily invested in grievance and blame, but because of the way in which racial mobilization works, it becomes so much easier to target that grievance and blame to this kind of amorphous notion of whiteness. Whiteness is responsible for our plight. When, in fact, the government itself has made various critical missteps along the way, and the underfunding of universities over a 20-year period is a key misstep, which have produced this overall situation. Michael, there's a very easy way to, to solve all these issues at once, and that is just to make Wi-Fi a human right, access to the Internet. Um, People can study wherever they want to. Uh, no outsourcing of workers will need to happen because universities won't exist. It's be much cheaper to study online. And you can study anything you want without having to come into contact with white people, if you so choose. This is Ramon, the anarchist, speaking. Um, but it's, it's, a simple, it's a simple process, I think. Why not just protest for free Wi-Fi all over the land? and let people choose what they want to study at home or wherever they wish. Um, yeah, a reminder, I think that's an ideal answer to the problems which we are faced with. Um, you know, 
the fact is that it is very important to have um, a physical university for a whole number of reasons. But one of which, which I'll touch on, is that you say, well, wouldn't it be better to have this all online so that you know, students wouldn't have to engage with, with white students? I mean, if, if you go down that road, it is, I think, giving um, up on the non-racial project. It is a giving up on the constitutional settlement of 1994. The fact is that we do want black students and white students living and working and studying together on campus. And I think it would be a, a profoundly unsatisfactory development um, if anything was done to jeopardize that. You know, these institutions must be spaces that are non-racial um, and in which black students and white students learn to live with one another and to get on with one another. Because, you know, for me at any rate, that's what the South African project is about. It's about creating the sort of non-racial, non-sexist, democratic society that's envisaged by our constitution. Interestingly, interestingly, there's a huge loss of faith among the members of the Rose Must Fall movement and the various other identitarian student movements in the legitimacy and the validity of the constitution and in the legitimacy of the negotiations that produced the constitution. So, you know, one of the reasons why I I get quite seized with what's going on at our university and why I get quite seized with identity politics is because, you know, beneath the surface, there's something deeper going on, and that something deeper is actually a, a profound assault on our constitutional settlement. Mm. It's a profound assault on the legitimacy of our constitutional institutions. It's a profound assault on non-racialism. I mean, that's what whiteness is. Whiteness and white privilege, it's an assault on non-racialism. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be some sort of um, colorblind Rainbowist living in a fantasy world yeah. where you know you Hashtag don't see something. Blind. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I for one don't go in for that kind of thing. Me neither. I, you know, I, I do think that um, color blindness has been misused, and I do think that um, it, it's naive in a way to talk about color blindness. But I do strongly believe that our salvation as a country a country which is a complex, plural, divided society because of our history of dispossession, that the answer lies in non-racialism, not in this kind of binary notion of whiteness and blackness, which is really a kind of identity chauvinism that inevitably leads to racial polarization. It inevitably leads to the scenes that we saw on the rugby field at the University of Free State earlier this week. It just tends towards polarization. Yeah. And, you know, we made those decisions um, in the run-up to 1994 um, for a whole host of complex, historically specific contextual reasons. And I do think that there is almost a kind of a historicism on the part of a young generation of students 
just regards Nelson Mandela as a sellout, who regard the people who struggle to produce our constitution as as complete sellouts. And I think that's based on a fundamental misreading and a misunderstanding and a lack of appreciation for a very, very fraught environment in which uh, our constitutional settlement was arrived at. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I agree with all of that. I, I wonder sort of kind of, you know, to sort of end off, because I think we've we've kind of gotten into the whole roads must fall and we've discussed them and, we, you know, as you say, there's a fascist nature to them. I just, I just wonder if we don't stop them here. Um, and, and I have to be honest, you know, I, I, I'm quite uh, glad to see that there are some voices a lot more than there were sort of eight months ago who are kind of waking up to the potential danger that they pose. But I, I'm just mm. wondering if, if we don't stop them here, kind of if we imag- imagine them in a very powerful position, if you kind of gave the leaders of this organization the country for a month, and you said to them, here you go, here's the whole cabinet and, and you're the kind of president, deputy, etc. Where do we end up? Because it, 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 it doesn't seem like a very good place. No. Um, you end up with complete destruction of institutions. Um, you end up with a series of scorched earth policies. And quite frankly, you end up, to answer your question, uh, with an EFF government. Um, you know, the, 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 that's the natural end of, that's the natural end point of this kind of economically illiterate uh, racial identity politics run amok. It's, 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 it's an EFF government. Um, that's what you're looking at. I'm not saying that an EFF government is, is, is going to come into existence. Far from it. Um, but I do think that there are certain similarities um, with the politics espoused by the identitarian student movement and with the EFF. So it's very clear now, it's become increasingly clear that the EFF is stoking some of this uh, racial violence on campuses. It seems very clear that the EFF was behind or supportive of um, the violence that erupted at the uh, University of the Northwest the other day. Um, it seems clear, Max Price himself has said in an opinion piece on the weekend, that the EFF is trying to embed itself in student politics at the University of Cape Town and is driving some of the violent excesses in the Rose Must Fall movement. So that's really what we need to guard against. Okay. It's quite interesting, I mean, in terms of the politics, uh, that uh, it seems that at many points throughout this, there have been different political motives involved, and, and at least from our perspective, parties, because, uh, you, you know, the ANC was more than happy to climb on this bandwagon previously, uh, and certainly this year it seems to be the election strategy. Uh, mm. The ANC is not racist, everyone else is, uh, so vote for us. Um, and your biggest problem in the country is racism, and I have to be honest, if I put it on a list from one to ten, I, I don't think racism even classifies in the top ten of our problems, actually. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting because I, I think in terms of identity politics and, and, and this whole sort of victimhood, uh, everyone kind of climbs on the bandwagon at some point. Yeah. Um, look, I, I'm not sure that I would – not that I'm saying you're suggesting that racism is completely unimportant, but I mean, you know, 
And racism is a thing in South Africa. I don't think we can deny that. I mean, how could it be otherwise after Does you know, exist. centuries I mean, of racial domination? I mean, the fact is that... Um, Racism does exist in South African society. But yes, you are quite right. Um, the ANC is using it as a diversionary election tactic, and it's easy to do so. You know, the, the politics of racial mobilization, our history has shown, um, well, any society that has racial cleavages has shown, in fact, the politics of racial division, of racial mobilization, of racial polarization, they are so easy. It's such an easy way of engaging in uh, political life. Yeah. All right. I think, uh, I mean, we'll end it off there before we get too political. Uh, I think it's it's been a good discussion on Roads Must Fall, and I I, I, mean, I would certainly hope that uh, they've kind of reached their uh, sort of uh, end point at, at this stage. I, I'm not sure they will because they do seem to be a quite passionate bunch. Um, but I, I certainly would hope that we see them decline, certainly, especially after the latest uh, violence that we've seen. Ramon, anything from you? Know, um, I, I think that there's certainly been a turning of the tide uh, in the wake of what happened last week at UCT with the burning of paintings. I do think that the movement has lost a substantial amount of public sympathy and support and that people who were kind of broadly sympathetic in the past have now become have now begun to ask questions um, also you know before we go I, I do want to say one thing it's, it's very easy um, to get trapped into thinking that the kind of discourse employed by the identitarians and the student movement um, sort of have much broader significance in our national life that in fact they do. You know, to some degree, some of the stuff happens in a bubble. And if you were to go out into, um, you know, uh, an informal settlement and begin to talk about whiteness and white privilege, I'm sure people would look at you with a blank expression on their face. Um, so there is a danger of kind of blowing the stuff up into more than it really is. Yeah, sure. I think that that's a valid point. Yeah, social media and its effects are not as great as we think. True. All right, Michael. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, very good to have you. I think, yeah, hopefully people will react yes. accordingly uh, to this. Thanks so much. The pleasure that is all ours. And we wish you a great weekend. It was great to talk to you. Good luck with the show. No, thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for joining thank us. Well. Cheers, Thanks, Jonathan. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Right, so uh, that was uh, Mark Cardo from the DA. Uh, Ramon, any comments? Well, a lot of truth bombs, I must be honest. Um, I hope our audience can take it without committing suicide or spontaneously combusting. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we're dealing with a bunch of people who, who might have legitimate concerns and some that I may sympathize with. Uh, but I do think the manner in which that is done is very important. And they are certainly not gaining my sympathy at the moment because the thuggish behavior is not uh, warranted by any means. Yeah, I mean, I, as I said, I, I really hope that they've sort of uh, almost burnt out. I know that's uh, hardly uh, the politically correct thing to say, but we don't intend to be politically correct uh, all the time on this show. Uh, 
I, I hope that we we've seen the last of them. To be honest, uh, uh, it's just not it's just not conducive to the national dialogue, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm not too sure we have seen the last of them. To be honest, I, I do have a feeling this is sort of the beginning, but we'll need to see the blowback from from the burning of the science labs in at NWU. Yeah, and in the meantime, there's a whole bunch of students who uh, just don't get to don't get to go to university this year. Isn't progressivism so great? It's just marvelous. All right, so that's our show for the week, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for listening, and uh, till next time. Don't forget to send your hate mail. Cliffcentralrevolution. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.